Are you ready to overcome the complexities and burdens that come with your success? Join the team at Centura Wealth Advisory in the Live Life Liberated podcast. Now, on to the show. Hello, and welcome to the Live Life Liberated podcast. I'm Wendy McConnell. Today, we have Samantha Lawrence and Seth Meisler. Hello, how are we today? We are doing great. Well, all right. Let's dive in. All right. Well, today we're here to talk about one of the planning tools that uh, we currently use, and we think it is a great planning tool for estate transfer, for transferring out of estate and managing estate taxes. And that name of that tool is called a Qualified Personal Residence Trust, or a QPERT. It's been around for a long time uh, with higher interest rates. It's made the uh, that strategy kind of dust it off and bring it back into play. Um, Samantha, what do you think of the Cupert strategy in terms of why we're doing it? Yeah, so the Cupert strategy is really a strategy focused around mitigating wealth transfer taxes. So our clientele likely and most of the time really has this issue where they're looking for planning solutions to mitigate wealth transfer taxes. And those three taxes are estate, gift, and generation skipping tax. So we think it's a very efficient strategy to focus on these tools for. Sounds good. And um, and our expectation is that taxes are going up. There's a lot of bills that need to be, get paid. And in order to do that, we think Congress is going to raise taxes. And so these are tools to think about. What what have you seen on that front, Sam? Yeah. So, I mean, speaking to the current environment that we're in today, we think that overall there's a large U.S. national debt problem. And just based off of our findings, as Seth mentioned, we really think that a primary way to combat this problem is going to be increasing tax revenue. Historically, we think that this is probably on the income tax side really going up, but we also think that on the wealth transfer tax side, um, there this is what we're going to call low-hanging political fruit. We think that this is an area of opportunity on the go forward. Yeah, as Will Rogers said, uh, the difference between death and taxes is death doesn't get worse every time Congress meets. <laughs> so uh, let's talk about what the Cupert is. It's a qualified personal residence trust. It's an irrevocable grantor trust where the grantor is gifting interest into a residence, either a primary or secondary residence. Think about like a personal home or a vacation home. And that trust has a set term for a number of years. During that, what they are gifting into that trust is, you know, that that real estate or interest in that real estate, but they're holding something back. What they're holding back is they're holding back the right to continue living in that residence or using that residence over that specific term. And during that term, the grantor will continue to pay maintenance, insurance, real estate taxes. And then at the end of that term, what happens is that that residence or the interest in that residence will get uh, moved over to the remainder beneficiaries. And then it is outside of the grantor's estate. And Samantha, what what properties or what can be transferred to a Cubert? How does that work? Yeah, so it's specifically either a primary or secondary residence. So it's not a property that is an investment property that's being rented out full time. It needs to be a property that the grantors utilize as either primary or secondary residence. And um, and how many properties can be in a Cubert? 
Yeah. So each QPERT can actually only hold one property. However, one property can be owned by multiple QPERTs. So you can imagine your primary home could be held in, say, two QPERTs, 50% in one QPERT, 50% in another QPERT. As an example, a married couple can hold four, a maximum of four QPERTs, two primary residences and two uh, secondary residences. The fact that you have a married couple owning two primary residences, I won't get into marriage counseling advice mm -hmm. here. This is just what the tax law says. That's true. Um, so reasons that we like the QPERT are the following. It's a it's a bargain for the grantor. What do we mean? Because of the fact that the grantor is holding that right to continue living in the property, we're able to discount the property, discount that interest in the property as at the time of the gift. So it's not being gifted at the fair market value. It's being gifted at a significant discount. And we uh, we call that part of the squeeze strategy, which uh, Samantha will talk about. The second thing is that when it comes to estate planning and tax planning, we call this the vanilla ice cream of tax planning strategies. It's not even French vanilla ice cream. It's really, it's simple, it's easy. The IRS has provided the rules. They've, they have written the guidelines on how to do this and it's considered a safe harbor technique. So there's very little risk of the IRS challenging the basic plan, although the IRS certainly could challenge the gifting amount. And the last thing is that the strategy is not dependent on asset returns to work. It works every single time. So we like strategies that work every single time. There is one key part of that strategy. And the key part is that the grantor needs to survive the term in order for the, for the asset to be transferred outside of the estate. If the grantor dies during the keeper term, then what happens is that basically everything gets unwound and the asset goes back into the grantor's estate at fair market value. Yeah. So Seth, given that, is there really a downside? What's the downside to setting this up? Or is it really just a fair trade? So I would say from an estate planning strategy, it's a heads you win, tails you tie. In other words, if the grantor survives the keeper term, you're moving an asset out at a significantly discounted value. That's a win. If the grantor dies, then it's as if the grantor never did anything in the first place. And so again, tells you tie. And so we like those kind of strategies. Granted, there's some things that we certainly can do to enhance the odds of that working. And that's not to say that there aren't risks associated with the strategy as well. That makes sense. Who would really be the ideal candidate for this transaction? Who is this going to fit well for? So what we like to say is that the ideal candidate has a mixture of four key ingredients, uh, health. In other words, the grantor needs to be in sufficient health that they're going to survive the Cooper term. The, um, and length of term does affect the discounting value of the asset. They need wealth that the grantor needs to be in, in a state tax situation. If the grantor is not in a state tax situation, there's kind of no, no point in doing this strategy. Uh, and that the, that the property has value, that is, there's a significant value to that property, that it's, that it's valuable residence. Um, maybe they want to keep it inside the family, a vacation home that has a lot of memories. And the grantor needs children. They need offspring that they are planning on giving this gift to. 
Grantor doesn't need to have all four of these strategies, all four of these characteristics, but it certainly helps. So kind of focusing back to the overall picture here, what estate estate planners often focus on is moving assets from their taxable estate out into their tax-sheltered estate. And this tax-sheltered estate is sheltering it from estate, gift, and generation skipping tax. So what we're working to do here is really move a primary or secondary residence out to that tax-sheltered estate. And then in combination with that, how can we squeeze down the value of that asset Instead of gifting it at fair market value, what discounting methods can we use to really drop the value down and utilize a lower amount of your lifetime exclusion? And Samantha, what what are the couple ways that we're doing that? Yeah. So the first one is as we start to get into the mechanics here, we found that it's useful actually instead of having a married couple set up one QPERT, we really find it useful to set up two separate QPERTs. And the way that we achieve the first discounting method is by having each grantor contribute 50% of their undivided fractional interest into each of these QPERTs. What we can then do is get a discounted valuation on the appraisal of the property. And what we found is we can actually get about a 25% discount on the value of the property. And then each 50% interest goes into two separate QPERTs. This also provides a mortality risk hedge. So we're also protecting against a mortality risk embedded in the transaction. If one grantor passes, only 50% of the property would come back into their taxable estate, while the other 50% could still go out into the tax sheltered estate. Okay, so one way that we're doing, one way that we're squeezing the property down is by separating the property and being a, um, dividing the interest. So it's not the whole interest in the property. Exactly. What's, what's the other thing that we're doing in order to uh, reduce the value, to squeeze the value of the QPERT? Yeah. So in order to do this, this actually comes into how the gift value is calculated when you're setting up a QPERT. And there is a calculator that's used, but basically the gift value is dependent upon the grantor's age and their IRS life expectancy, the QPERT term and duration, the discount amount, and re- relating to this, the IRS 7520 rate. So there's a couple different factors that go in to figuring out this remainder gift value. But essentially, let's say a term of 15 years is chosen for the QPERT. In years zero through 15, they allocate a portion of the value of the home to the retained value of the home. And then in years 15 through IRS life expectancy, they allocate a portion of the value to the remainder gift. So you're only filing a gift tax return on, first of all, the discounted value due to the lack of control and lack of marketability. And then secondarily, only to the future value of the gift outside of the QPERT term. Got it. And so if the term is longer, what happens to the value of that of that gift? Let's go into kind of like the aspects around the shorter term trust and aspects around the longer term trust. So if you choose a shorter term trust, you will have an increased gift value because your retained value in the home is for a shorter amount of time. You will pay rent sooner. So I don't know if this is something that we've touched on yet, Um, Seth. If a grantor wants to reside in the property after the term of the trust, what is required of them? Yeah, that's a great question. So depending upon how it is structured, and it can be structured directly to the beneficiaries, it can be the remainder beneficiaries could be uh, the children of the grantor. It could be to a trust or it could be to a trust for the use of the spouse. So in two out of three situations where it's a straight trust, 
what happens is that the, if the grantor wants to continue living and using that property, they need to pay rent because they are no longer the owner of the property. That rent is not necessarily a bad thing because it actually allows more of the estate to get used up. So depending upon how it is structured, it can be it can either be those rental can can be taxable income or you can structure in a way where the rent is not taxable income if the uh, remainder beneficiary is, for example, a grantor trust. Yeah. In addition to that, as Seth mentioned, too, if someone's looking to utilize more, they have an estate problem, they're trying to get the value of their taxable estate down and they want to utilize less of their lifetime exclusion amount, these rent payments will really burn down that taxable estate and they won't be taxable gifts. Yeah, there's a term that we use, Sam. I don't know if you want to talk about it called the squeeze, freeze, burn technique. Yeah. And so we've got to talk to pieces of it. You want to describe that in a little bit more detail? Yeah, definitely. So the value in the transaction is really the fact that we can burn that we can discount down this fair market value of the property. So what we're talking about here is the squeeze portion. So we think we can squeeze the property. In one of our recent case examples, we were actually able to squeeze the property down to 76% of its current fair market value. So you can see that's a significant discount to the fair market value. Well, we also have the freeze here. So we're transferring this asset outside of the taxable estate at that discounted value and then freezing it. So we're not recognizing all of the future growth on the asset. And then back to the rent payments, we're burning down the taxable estate. So we're able to partake in a squeeze, freeze, and burn technique here to really make it efficient. Right. Um, and what is what do you see as some of the risks with this strategy? Yeah, so there's many things that can go wrong. First of all, you want to make sure that you have hired an estate planning attorney that really has expertise in this so that you make sure the trust covers all of the correct drafting aspects. There's many different nuances here, so that that's a primary aspect. Um, some unanticipated cash flow needs. So if the grantor has reduced cash flow and needs to liquidate the property, this could cause an issue based on um, if they sell the home and what they do with the proceeds on the back end. Another one could be if they have an outstanding mortgage. This doesn't preclude someone from partaking in the strategy. However, it does make it more complex. And most professionals will not um, engage clients that actually do this because it just makes it pretty messy in the end to, to do overall. Are there any right. um, other risks you wanted to highlight, Seth? Yeah, certainly if the grantor sells the property, it it doesn't... It just creates more challenges in terms of uh, what are they replacing that property with? Uh, are they replacing it with a property that's more expensive or less expensive? And how does that work? And so there's some planning that is required. Doesn't doesn't break everything, but it just uh, it just adds complexity. Probably the big big one is uh, fallouts between grantor and children that along the way potentially. The grantor decides, hey, I don't want to pay rent to that uh, good-for-nothing kid. So something like that happens. Or the situation is that the child's like, what do you mean I've inherited this asset? Now I have to pay maintenance and property taxes, et cetera. I never wanted this asset in the first place. And so those kind of situations can cause uh, challenges. The The other thing that I've seen is, you know, I'm going to date myself a little bit, but I remember when estate taxes were $650,000. And not like twenty, not twelve point nine million dollars, 
was the exemption. And so Cuberts uh, were quite um, an attractive strategy at that point in time. And today, after the end of the Cupert terms, you have people who are who at six hundred fifty thousand dollars they had an estate tax situation, but at twelve point nine million they didn't, and they're like, oh, I, I wish I wasn't. I wish I didn't have that Cupert because I'm no longer in an estate tax situation. So legislative changes kind of work both ways. Yeah, most definitely. To highlight on one of the risks that you mentioned there, the fallout between the grantor and the children, we have actually designed the Cupert to. We focused on the Cupert itself, but then we've actually designed what we're calling a protected Cupert. And in order to provide flexibility for the grantors and for the beneficiaries, we've set up our Cuperts to have the remainder beneficiary be an intentionally defective grantor trust with irrevocable life insurance provisions. Some of the benefits to having a trust be the remainder beneficiary is asset protection overall. So instead of having the property go outright to the beneficiaries, you are protecting it through a trust. It also, some grantors don't like to pay rent payments maybe directly to their children. So they like it better when it's going into a trust just for family reasons. But how we make this really a protected Cupert is sometimes we will pair this with survivorship life insurance. So the Idget Islet would actually be the owner and the beneficiary of the life insurance policy, and the death benefit would pay out upon the second passing of the grantor. And correct me if I'm not wrong, Samantha, but you can use that life insurance for the remainder beneficiaries. They can use it to pay real estate taxes, maintenance on the home, all the things, all any sort of repairs or improvements, correct? And that would yeah. be one of those. Yeah, that's one large benefit. So after the QPERT term, the primary benefits here is exactly what Seth just mentioned, financial support for the property maintenance. But in addition to that, estate equalization. So a lot of grantors fear that upon their passing, there's going to be conflict among their heirs around who gets the property, monitoring when they get to receive it. If someone moves out of the state and they don't want to utilize it anymore, what occurs? So this death benefit will provide liquidity and leverage to the next generation to come to a plan in order to equalize each other based on their different goals and needs. So one of the things I hear you saying is that uh, insurance will solve a lot of potential problems, both foreseen and unforeseen. Yeah. Yeah. And then even so the primary coverage benefit during the QPERT term is really just to protect against the mortality risk. So in the case that the property does come back into the taxable estate, it will provide estate liquidity to pay the estate tax due upon passing. What if um, kind of after the keeper term, the kind of the, the grantor changes their mind, they really don't want that estate to really pass on for whatever reason. Uh, have you seen a situation where they, they, they're supposed to be paying the rent, but they actually use a strategy of not paying the rent in order for it to actually revert back into their estate? I have not seen that so far, but yeah, if they did not pay the rent and they were audited and the IRS found this out, it would revert back into their taxable estate and it would um, be subject to estate tax upon their passing. Right. So it could be a good planning strategy or an awful planning strategy, depending upon the situation. Very true. What about if they make a large, they decide they want to make a large home improvement? What happens to the, the asset? So during the QPERT term, if they wanted to make a large capital improvement, and so this isn't going to just be maintenance items, this is going to be their 
adding a whole renovation to the home, something really large, it would actually be an additional gift to the Cupert. So you would need to pull out that calculator that looks at how many years are left in the term and get a gift tax calculation done and file an additional 709 gift tax return. Yeah. And I mean, you could do a second Cupert if you wanted to. That could be another option. There, there are some options, but certainly you're adding complexity to the transaction. There's no Most doubt definitely. about that. One other thing I do want to mention is uh, basis. So the basis of the asset does carry over into the Cupert. You don't get a step up in basis, unlike if it was kept inside your estate. Yeah. Which also means that the asset is subject to capital gains taxes if sold by the remainder beneficiaries. Now, again, the remainder beneficiaries can hold it. And then if they pass, you still get a step up in basis if it's over multiple generations. But if it's sold before you have that low basis asset, you also lose the exclusion potentially if they are not um, living in that property. So you have you have some of those issues as well. However, I would say capital gains tax being 20, 23% or so, 23.8% versus 40% or 50%, including some states, for a state tax. And the one thing that I learned is that 20 is less than 40. Hmm. So That's true. Yeah, I think it's an important conversation to have with both the grantors and the beneficiaries around what their goals are with the property. If they all really want to retain this in the property for multiple generations, or if maybe that's just a belief that the grantors have, but the beneficiaries really don't see the value in the home. Those are definitely conversations you'd want to have up front prior to going into this transaction. Right. So certainly the, the income tax piece is an important component and needs to be thought out ahead of time. Yeah, most definitely. And there's also an additional benefit just circling back to the life insurance on the protected QPERT. How it does tie in is if the grantors have the goal to utilize the property after the term expires, the rent payments on the go forward will service the premium payment. So we wanted to make sure that this really tied in together and it wasn't going to be an additional cost. And so in the cases that we've done so far, the rent payments are far greater than what the premium payments have been. So it's sufficient capital in the trust to really service the premiums on the go forward. Got it. And do you think the Cupert is kind of like a set and forget it? type strategy? I wouldn't say set it and forget it. I think there's different times and different needs, but I think at the time of setup, there's a lot of ongoing check-ins with the professionals. During the term of the QPERT, if you're not really making any changes to the property and things stay status quo, there's probably not a lot needed there. I think you really need to pull the professionals back in at the QPERT term just to make sure everyone's still on the same page in terms of the grantors and the beneficiaries' goals and needs. Right. You may need to remind the grantor that uh, 10, 15 years ago, they decided what they were going to do and that they were going to be paying rent on this. They uh, they may um, conveniently forget that fact. Yeah. Yeah. It depends on, especially on the term of the trust too, the longer term trust, it is a while that you're setting this all aside. So it uh, does not stay top of mind for all clients. Yeah. So in a nutshell, again, we find that the qualified personal residence trust, especially with interest rates where they are today, is a really interesting strategy. I would call this uh, strategy a um, an old trick for new dogs. So it's uh, kind of dusting that off the off the shelf of a strategy, which I think works really well. Yeah, Seth, what do you like to call this transaction? 
I like to call this transaction a, um, a red hot chili pepper strategy. And what do I mean by that? Uh, it's give it away, give it away, give it away now. We are giving away the asset now and with the idea of getting that discounted value as part of the gift tax. Yeah, so, that's great. Any additional points that you wanted to cover before we wrap it up here? No, I, again, I really think, you know, the key, one of the keys is really keep paying attention to the length of the trust term, the longer the trust term, the larger the discount, but the bigger the risk of the grantor not surviving. So that's the balancing act is really paying attention to that. The shorter the term, the more likely it's going to work, but the less the discount. Aside from that, I think it's a great strategy. You really need to, you really do need to though think very carefully and planfully and have the right people working on this because it can, it can easily go awry. Definitely. And then just kind of circling back to what Seth said earlier too, it's really just a heads you win, tails you tie situation. So you would be foregoing the setup costs and the time to do it up front, but in the end, you're not losing. You'd just be back to the situation you started in. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Samantha. Yeah. Thanks, Seth. It's been a lot of fun working on this project with you. You as well. All right, guys. Thank you both. Thank you, Samantha. Thank you, Seth. How can somebody get in touch with you guys if they have more questions? Yeah. So our website is centurawealth.com and you will find my information as well as Seth's on the website. We also do, you can find us on LinkedIn as well. And we have many additional resources via our podcast and our website in order to learn more about the strategies we are doing today. Great. Well, thank you for joining us today. Please like, follow, and share this podcast with your friends. Until next time, I'm Wendy McConnell. Thank you for listening to the Live Life Liberated podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Centura Wealth Advisory. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Centura Wealth Advisory, Centura, is an SEC-registered investment advisor with its principal place of business in San Diego, California. Centura and its representatives are in compliance with the current registration and notice filing requirements imposed on SEC-registered investment advisors, in which Centura maintains clients. Centura may only transact business in those states in which it is notice filed or qualifies for an exemption or exclusion from notice filing requirements. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Tax relief varies based on client circumstances and all clients do not achieve the same results. 